Hi, and welcome to The Transect, a show about archaeology in BC. I'm Sean P. Connaughton. I'm Ian Sellers. And I'm Cody Heward. And today we have a special guest, Professor Allison Wiley. Allison, welcome. Thank <laughs> 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 I'll just I'll just break the ice here. We're all a little bit nervous about this, so we really appreciate you doing this for us and sitting oh. down and chatting. We're all um, jammed into my little office. Yeah, it's cozy. <laughs> it's a really nice day at UBC, uh, right before the beginning of the semester. It's yeah, it's, a, it's kind of nice to be on campus and just uh, just to be back here. It's very nice. Are you feeling the vibes? Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. What about you, Cody? I got really lost on my way over here and ended up going the wrong way down a one-way street and almost hit a bus. So I'm a little bit harried still. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just want to introduce Allison really quickly, if you don't mind, guys. That's that's yeah. a, that's all right with everybody. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, that's fine. <laughs> I just want to introduce someone else. <laughs> I just want to note that uh, Professor Wiley is in the Department of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia. Um, we've lo- we've kind of read a lot of her work through school, I imagine, like thinking from things and other articles. Have you? Yeah, George had us reading a fair bit of it in the Arc Theory at SFU. Yeah, so yeah. Allison's quite well known and, and she's quite prolific. Um, and just kind of a quick, uh, I guess, summary is that Allison really uses both philosophy of science and a feminist platform to sort of develop insights into uh, the nature of archaeological practice. Would you say that's a fair? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. A fair assessment, yeah. <laughs> So, um, so yeah. welcome, and thank you for making time for doing this. That's great. It's great. Great to have you here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, typically, uh, the listeners are probably sick of hearing me say this, but typically what we like to do when we have somebody new on the show is ask them a little bit about their origin story, uh, how they kind of came into the world of archaeology, as it were. So, I came into the world of archaeology as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> How um, old? Uh, well, it's interesting. I just moved, so I'm unpacking a lot of books that were in storage for the year. I moved up from Seattle last year, and, and we put a lot of stuff in storage until just this last month. Anyway, there's this whole whack of books that I remember from when I was, I don't know, like 8 or 10 or you know around that age yeah. that my parents had, my father in particular. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the time. A bunch of them are... Uh, little field reports and and county archaeology summaries mm-hmm. from the UK because I, I was born in England. My father was um, at a military college of science there, and then mm-hmm. then taught taught there for five years. Uh, and they, I guess they got really interested in archaeology in the UK. So there's a whole lot of stuff about Wiltshire County archaeology <laughs> <laughs> and Stonehenge. We're talking 1952. <laughs> oh man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm trying to remember the title is a sort of famous, popular book, Seram. I think it was, the, the author's name was Merrick, but it was, mm-hmm. his pseudonym was spelt backwards. But, you know, <laughs> sort of the love of archaeology. And I remember poring over, you know, images of Egypt and things when I was a kid. But my father was uh, Canadian military, and he was a colleague of uh, Jim Pendergast, who I bet you've, I've heard that you know name. about. I yeah, know the name for part. The, the- award that that's right he got the saa award yeah so that's actually how i first avocational archaeology yeah. Yeah. yeah um and anyway jim was a really serious um archaeologist like not professional archaeologist mm-hmm. and he and my dad well he would arrange with the national museum to get funding 
to uh, spend a couple weeks in the summer testing and surveying and documenting sites along the St. Lawrence River Valley that the National Museum wanted to know about. And so my my dad would get, you know, they'd arrange their, their summer holidays at the same time and mm-hmm. extend them by a week or two, and these families would all go out and camp. Oh, wow. And, and it's going to uh, bring, bring the whole family and all these guys. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right. So that mm-hmm. was that's when I was first on archaeology sites. And I mean, the funny thing about it is, in retrospect, I I hated it when I <laughs> it was like tedious and boring and everybody else I knew got to go to summer camp and learn how to canoe and learn how to do like you know sort of woodcraft kinds of stuff yeah more freeform yeah <laughs> we were like we kids would be standing there with stadia rods while these military engineers oh, yeah. sort of yeah. site with yeah stand here exactly <laughs> hold that stadia rod don't move you move <laughs> right and then once they got things surveyed and they were doing some test excavation um they'd often give us what i remember was being given a little little the kids pit you know where they thought that definitely would be sterile and we were testing for right. sterile mm-hmm. inevitably we would find something cool and then we'd get kicked off of the kids pit yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. the grown-ups <laughs> would take it over <laughs> yeah go over there so then, so then, yeah. What we, yeah. Then what we did was um, dig through the back dirt when there was enough back dirt to dig through and, and mm. embarrass the grown ups by finding their artifacts, yeah. stuff that they. That's what I remember. Yeah, you were kind of doing the negative testing. I was exactly. <laughs> so that was yeah. So I I was on on sites from an early age, and it, I certainly did not think it was something I wanted to do any other time in my life. Mm-hmm. But then when I was I was an undergraduate at Mount A in New Brunswick and I needed a summer job and Parks Canada was advertising that summer it would have been 73 uh, they okay. were um, back when Parks Canada actually had archaeologists I gather yeah they, they did not fare well under Harper no. um, but anyway they they had a program in the 70s of uh, testing excavating documenting a whole bunch of uh, historic period sites where they wanted to be developing national historic parks and I ended up getting a job on uh, at Fort Walsh in Saskatchewan, south southwest Saskatchewan in the Cypress Hills. Is that your neighborhood? Do, do you know that code here? No, I'm I'm from Saskatchewan, but I'm from uh, more like North Battleford area, like very oh. very north Saskatchewan. Yeah, this is right down, um, like the the Cypress Hills Park. I think actually overlaps into Alberta and is just at the U.S. border. Hmm. So, like, the ranchers there would, you know, drive down to get their annual supply of blue jeans. <laughs> like, overland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trump, lot- Trump would love it. Yeah. <laughs> no fence, no border. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Grab a bunch of counterfeit blue jeans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. uh, so do they end up registering any any sites from that work? Like, uh, this was all part of from the from work the on the St. Lawrence River Valley. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. yeah, or the Cypress Hills River Valley. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I think they did. And the thing is that Pendergast ended up. Uh, he took early retirement from the army, and he uh, got a job as I think assistant director of the National Museum, and then did a bunch of work with uh, Bruce Trigger. Mm. And so they, yeah, and so they worked that Bruce was doing on Huron, Iroquois, you know, what happened Mm -hmm. to the First Nations who were first contacted Mm -hmm. when Europeans, French and English arrived and were said to disappear from the Mm -hmm. Montreal area. That was the stuff that they were working on. 
And he was an amateur archaeologist? He was, avocational, yeah. 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 Well, I guess when he was, when he became in yeah. retirement an assistant director of the National Museum, yeah, I know. he might yeah, not anymore have been avocational. Professional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he was, you know, he was interesting. I, um, and I don't think, I don't think he ever went to college. He, you know, he didn't have, he wasn't like, sort of educated, mm-hmm. uh, trained professionally as an archaeologist. But there's a military history in archaeology, though, oh, I mean, yeah. going way back, right? I mean, yeah. And all of those, the, all of the skills necessary for field logistics and survey mm-hmm. are things yeah. you, you pick up if you are. Yeah, General Pitt Rivers yeah, and exactly. Wheeler and all those guys. Yeah, so it's not an accident. I mean, so they, they're military and they set it, the mold for field work. Mm-hmm. And then... Now all the metaphors of you know a campaign and a you know. yeah right. <laughs> Rosie Joyce has some. Rosie Joyce and I think um, Bob Purcell have a paper where they talk about the military metaphors and huh. I know, how I should look that. that yeah. Yeah, it's it's a while ago, but I remember reading it and think, oh my. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it seems to be a thing more in the states where it's actually quite a popular profession for veterans still. Uh, oh, is it? Yeah. And yeah. I, I feel like I see that more out of the United States, and I. I don't know why this is, but I think it's because there's preferential uh, hiring for veterans uh, through government jobs. And so when federal uh-huh. archaeological positions are open, veterans are prioritized for that. I don't yeah. know if that's actually the case, but it, it seems to be a popular That's interesting. So you, so you see them working like professionally yes. in archaeology as Yes, as, a, yeah. as government yeah. uh, hired archaeologists. There's some interesting stuff, too, that um, Tom Patterson has this social history of archaeology that he, he wrote maybe... 15 or 20 years ago. Hmm. And one piece of that, he in, in one of the later chapters in that book, he talks about how archaeology in the U.S. was really transformed post-Second uh, World War by, by the VA, by VA bill. Mm-hmm. They gave access to education, um, higher education, to a whole lot of um, mainly men in, from rural counties in the midwest and the southeast hmm. who would never have gone to college but who grew up on farms and in rural areas where they they were picking up you know artifacts all the time they yep. they knew mm-hmm. you know intimately where all the sort of indigenous belongings were on their land and they then went to um, public universities so he describes this tension between the the kind of elite private mostly East Coast schools and the traditions of like the Wheeler and Pitt mm-hmm. Rivers kind of traditions mm-hmm. of doing archaeology, mostly like in Mesoamerica or the Middle East with huge labor forces and things like that. And then these guys who, you know, did the work themselves and Working had in this intimate connection with the archaeology of their region. So mm-hmm. he describes archaeology, the demography really changing after the Second World War because of because uh, of that VA education policy, yeah, the GI Bill, like in terms of class, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Big, big class transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that and describes in a couple of articles like these two really different archaeology cultures in the U.S. that reflect that period. So I don't know if the current stuff has anything to do with that, but mm. maybe it's connected. Maybe. Yeah, and I would imagine archaeology. If you're coming in from a, a background uh, with a family history that that doesn't have a lot of familiarity with the education system, like going into an archaeology class and having knowledge about mm-hmm. the landscapes and having knowledge about uh, archaeological material just from being on the land, 
It's and an having necessary to... skills like yes, that are keeping values. trucks running and <laughs> yes. getting from point A to point B. <laughs> like yeah. it's it's a way to be incredibly useful in an academic system, which you're otherwise yeah. kind of excluded from just based on your background. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's I've not I don't remember him saying anything about that, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, it's funny to think about those skills that you take for granted, though, like logistics and contingency plans. We're always wrestling with that. We're out in the field mm-hmm. in the bush yeah. and taking care of people and just the things you have to be flexible and adaptive. And things then, that aren't easy to learn on campus. Yeah, that you <laughs> no, can't really absolutely learn. Yeah. don't learn. You don't learn in a classroom. Which is why, I mean, it's so striking over years in academia, any anthropology department or any department with archaeologists in it that I know of, it's the archaeologists who end up being the chairs of these departments mm. because... You know, they organize yeah. stuff. They they work with people yeah. in a way that oftentimes, say, ethnographers or linguists don't. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, there's that's a little bit of my origin story. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fascinating. And, yeah. and you were talking about the Cypress Hills as well. Who did you work yeah. with? Uh, yeah, so that was interesting. Parks, that was with Parks, right? Yeah, it was Parks Canada. Um, but the guy they hired to run that project was Jim Cezanti, and he was trained at he had, he never I don't think he ever did actually file his dissertation, but he'd done <laughs> all yeah. his coursework yeah. and exam you know he would all but yeah. dissertation at the University of Arizona. Okay, and he'd done it in like the late sixties, early seventies. Processional, yeah, exactly. It was like the field program yeah. for processionalism. So he worked with I think he worked with Longacre and. Yeah, Jimmy Jeff Reed and that whole crew. Okay. Schiffer would have been younger, I think, right. him later. But but he was really um, imprinted on the new archaeology. And so, however it happened, Parks Canada hired this firebrand new archaeologist, processionalist, and yeah. sent him out to Fort Walsh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and with these directions, you are to document the historic site. Like yeah. the, it was a remount station for the RCMP. It had been Northwest Mounted Police Fort. And mm. I think it was bought in the 40s, maybe. I forget the details of the history, but uh, it became a national park in the 60s, National Historic Park in the 60s. Um, But for a lot of that period, it had been um, a remount station where the RCMP bred and trained those horses in the musical ride and things like that. Yeah. So anyway, the um, RCMP had rebuilt the historic fort based on photographs okay. that they had, um, and they and and so it was you know roughly looked kind of like the fort looked in the photographs from yeah. the eighteen seventies sixties seventies, but so the mandate was go and find the real foundations mm. and get some you know nice you know display worthy artifacts as many as possible. <laughs> so, so how did those, do you know how those directions translated into his work? Did he have Oh, he hated them. He, yeah. he resisted them from the day he got on oh, that okay. site, from what I could tell. I mean, I was, I like, finished my first year as an undergraduate. I didn't have, and there wasn't any archaeology being taught at Mount A, so I had no clue, really, what the battle lines were. But yeah. Yeah. Are, are you talking about, like, from the parks? You mean yeah. the parks? Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the yeah. parks man did on, is it Jim? Uh, Jim yeah. Jim Cezanne, yeah. yeah, and and he just absolutely. I mean, you you shouldn't be doing any field work unless you have a problem. You have to be testing a hypothesis, <laughs> right? Yeah. So the idea of just going and like digging, digging up a bunch of foundations yeah. was like <laughs> anathema. We found foundations. <laughs> yeah. So he so was what? really really interesting to work with. He, yeah. I learned a lot from him. But before we went in the field, he assigned us a reading list that had a bunch of um, <laughs> Northwest Mounted Police history. Mm. And some archaeology from the region. There's some um, mm-hmm. 
some archaeology of indigenous sites and Métis sites, some historic period archaeology, but then a whole bunch of new archaeology. Yeah. Fritz and Plog and Binford Plog, and, and Plog, yeah. stuff like that. All Dietz, that. I think we read. I think um, In Small Things Forgotten was out mm-hmm. by that time, so we read that Jim stuff. Jim Dietz. Yeah. yeah. Did you yeah. like Binford stuff? Not really, no. I thought, it, you know, I mean, I you get the sense that, like, in the early work, the, what, what's the title of that piece? Archaeology is Anthropology. Oh, the one he got and, from Willie and Phillips. Yeah. 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 There's just, like, this this kind of vibrant, passionate, you know, we need to do things different. And, and I found that exciting and interesting. Mm-hmm. But when I dug into it, particularly as I studied more philosophy of science and mm-hmm. was really scrutinizing the use he was making of um, Carl Hempel's work, for example, an explanation, it just came apart in your hands. I just didn't yeah. think, or whatever that metaphor is, it just, it didn't hang together as an argument. It was it was more rhetoric than substance, I felt. Yeah, do you think he was yeah. unfairly attacking the culture historians? I mean, you I, did, yeah. you, I, I feel like yeah. you have to at least build that chronology yeah. to ask the more interesting questions, don't you? There's that, and also what he, not only that, but he didn't recognize... I think the kind of innovative work that people were doing mm-hmm. um, at that time already doing landscape archaeology mm-hmm. and doing uh, ecological analysis and so on. So there were many things that were already happening in the 60s, 50s and 60s that carried forward and, and new archaeologists made their own that they that he didn't ever credit. Yeah. And then there's the irony that, remember he was invoking uh, Walter Taylor? Yeah, I love W.W. Taylor, right? Yeah. yeah like Taylor, a, I thought, was really... The study sweet. of archaeology. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant, that yeah. book. I mean, I disagree with lots of it, but <laughs> yeah, I thought yes. that, but yeah. that was precisely not Binford style. It was very careful, very analytic, very mm-hmm. substantive in many ways, um, passionate. I mean, his takedown of, of the sort of elite school. Yeah. Now, that actually, that fits with the with the the um, Patterson analysis because he was always I think he was at um, SIU Edwardsville or at least he was certainly in the Midwest and mm-hmm, always mm-hmm. at public schools and in public school contexts and his takedown was of the elite Mayan researchers mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. at Harvard and Princeton Yale and so on yeah um, so there's a, you know some of that dynamic was was really explicit um, and he was a you know he was criticizing them for just basically extracting treasure, you know, just appropriating yeah. cultural material and not doing any serious work with it. Um, but anyway, the irony for me was that Binford and company would invoke um, Taylor as, you know, the one kind of standout critic of the mainstream and traditional archaeology. But in fact, Taylor's arguments for his conception of culture, this idealistic normative conception mm-hmm. of culture, we, he was championing exactly the conception of culture that the new archaeologists were rejecting. Mm-hmm. So that that's just one example where <laughs> Binford made me crazy. It's like, yeah. did you ever actually read Taylor? I mean, <laughs> he's been selected <laughs> and just this. selectively, and didn't even really the bits that were more compatible with Binford's line, the stuff on conjunctive analysis and so on, mm-hmm. or conjunctive facts. Didn't no real careful engagement with that. So I, 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 you know, I found Benford frustrating. Do you ever interact um, with him personally? Do you little, ever... yeah, a little bit, not not much. Yeah. Um, I was at a SEAC meeting one time. I guess I'm trying to think when that would have been. Maybe eighty three or eighty four. Is that is that a Southeastern Archaeology Orange, Conference? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it was the year I was. I spent a year as a postdoc at WashU in St. Louis. Pat Watson mm. and Red Watson were there. <sighs> okay. Yeah. 
And and that's why I would have gone because yeah. Pat would have been rallying us all up and taking us off to SEAC. Mm-hmm. And Binford caught sight of me. I don't know how he knew me, but he <laughs> caught sight of me in a hallway and it just kind of came, as I remember it, <laughs> charging down. <laughs> so I was like, you've got everything wrong that I ever said about an allergy. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first thing he said. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I know who you are. You know? I, felt like, you know, I felt like I was just like one red flag in this yeah. was the <laughs> Just got out of the way. Yeah. So I had a couple of other interactions that were a bit more, you know, less contentious. Yeah, but that's good. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but he wasn't someone I ever got to know. Uh, I did get to know people who worked with him, who yeah. thought the world of him and saw a very different side mm-hmm. of him. Saw more the kind of charismatic, visionary side that I found yeah, it's, exciting in some of the early writing. But, you know. It's fun to talk yeah. with people that have had those interactions because we're all, we, we never got to experience these people during during that moment. A lot of our teachers mm-hmm. yeah. have like talked about these incidences and reading their work and, and interactions. But for us, it's kind of removed a little bit. You mean you read in school <laughs> and grad school? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's fun yeah. to put some like life to these characters and kind of imagine how they oh, are. Oh, he and, was bigger than life, yeah. yeah. He was really larger than life. And then, yeah, and then I had more to do with Ian Hodder. Okay, right. Because I was in the UK. My thesis supervisor was at Oxford. I was at SUNY at Binghamton to do grad work. There was a philosophy of social science program there. Um, that allowed you to explore archaeology. That was kind of unique yeah. about it, right? Yeah, it required anyone coming into that program at SUNY Binghamton to come in with or get an MA in whatever social science they were studying as a oh, philosopher. That's really interesting. Yeah, and there's almost there's nothing like it. Mm-hmm. And it it um, doesn't I, exist, does it? No, I I uh, got into that program in its second year, and I think I was the only person who came in with just an, a BA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had to figure out how to double up my coursework to get an MA along the way. And and at Binghamton at the time, John Fritz and Meg Conkey and Chuck Rugman and all those folks were there. Okay. So I did a lot of archaeology coursework and. Mm-hmm hung out with and shared house with all kinds of archaeologists. It was great. It was really a great place to be. But the guy who set up that philosophy program died the first year. It was like fast-moving cancer. It was diagnosed in the fall and had died by the spring. It was terrible. And they didn't ever, they weren't able to replace him as director of that program. And and so they let those of us in the program finish. Mm -hmm. Or most most of them, because they had MAs, they went back to the grad programs they'd come from. Um, but through that program, you were able to go to Oxford and, and make connections yeah, with Cambridge. So, yeah, exactly. So, so um, the the folks who had set up the program they, at that time, they seemed to have lots of money sloshing around. So they brought in <laughs> external visitors, and one of the external visitors who came every year for I think it was about two months in the fall was this guy Ram Hooray, a philosopher of science at at Oxford. And so he was my thesis supervisor, and I would take classes with him in the fall. And then about three years into the program, I went and spent nine months at Oxford. And that was the point when I I went over to uh, Cambridge to Mm -hmm. a couple of the seminars that... um, that Ian was running. And the interesting thing was, so the archaeologists had brought Ian in to give a lecture. And it might have been the first RATS conference, or, or it was sort of one of the, you know, sort of anticipated the mm-hmm. RATS conferences. Mm-hmm. So there was Ian giving this, and it was packed lecture hall, big lecture hall. And he started off by talking about, like, well, he said, I, I, I assume I'm, I've been invited because of the work I've done on spatial analysis. And he describes some of his spatial packing models. 
And then he just sort of stopped dead as I remember it. You could hear a pin drop, and he said, but I think it's just all completely wrongheaded. Really? <laughs> and, that, and then he started in on, it was interesting, I recently looked at notes I took on that lecture, he started in on this account of like the new archaeology for, for new archaeology, processual archaeology needs to pay attention to, needs to address the social dimensions of, and uh, you know, cultural life world dimensions mm-hmm. of, of what, all, what we're all studying. Um, he didn't s- present his alternative interpretive approach in opposition to processual archaeology at the time. He was presenting it as like, this is the logical sort of next step. If you push the processional mandate, this is where you have to go. You shouldn't be buying a restrictive model of what counts as culture and, Mm -hmm. you know, refusing to address any of the factors that aren't sort of reducible to or determined by ecological conditions. Mm -hmm. So it was really interesting. So so I met him on that visit Mm -hmm. and then... He was running this seminar that was astonishing because there were a lot of students, or um, I guess they'd be one cohort younger, but um, people who who would have studied um, with, uh, oh, why am I slipping his name? Nick, did you say Clark, Nick? David Clark. Oh, oh Dave, yeah. 1973, yeah, Loss David of Clark. Innocence. Yeah, yeah. The Loss of Innocence and then the stuff on modeling and so on. Oh, he, yeah. He died unexpectedly apparently a reaction uh to uh some kind of inoculation when he was going to be traveling in eastern europe really i got like a vaccination and he and he like dropped dead Hmm. and so bob chapman who i wrote this recent book i've done some recent work with on evidential reasoning in archaeology bob was a student of of uh of clark's Mm -hmm. and there's a whole cohort of people who were at cambridge to study with clark uh, and then he died, and one way or another, Ian was hired, I think initially maybe on a sort of temporary basis. But there were these younger students who um, who were in, you know, who ended up in Ian's uh, seminar. Henrietta Moore was one, Mike Parker Pearson. Mm. All um, these names, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Chris Tilley, um, mm-hmm. trying to think of who else. But there was like a who's who of yeah. those who became post-processual archaeologists, or in, in Henrietta's case, moved more into ethnography and development politics and stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that was, yeah, I had, um, because the program at Binghamton um, wasn't admitting new students, um, I negotiated to spend one term at the University of Arizona when, when Marilee Salmon and Wes Salmon were there, and nine months in Oxford um, okay. studying with uh, with Ram Hooray and went across to, to Ian. So, yeah, and I thought Ian's work was really interesting in the, in the early, the interpretive symbolic structuralist initiatives mm-hmm. that he was developing were really interesting. But here's the connection with, with why I thought of him in connection with Binford. Um, he's not like a big personality the way Binford is, but he's you know, clearly like really ambitious, you know, mover, shaker, you know. And the thing I found frustrating with him over the years was that he had these great ideas, any one of which, if he'd pushed systematically, developed systematically, I think could have been really productive. But his whole way of living in the world intellectually seemed to be characterized by that lecture I heard. Mm-hmm. You know, Only you know, that he, he needed to have these moments where he could say, everything I've done today is wrong. And I'm, <laughs> I'm on to the next new big thing. He had always to be jumping. On the edge. On the, yeah, to the, whatever the new, defining what the new bandwagon would be and then jumping off it before too many people were on it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I've thought with respect to him and Binford, 
that it's an, in a way a great loss to the profession that they they as kind of figureheads and and dominant well dominant figures influential figures in the field didn't do their best work they lacked a bit of follow through yeah because that and you know in a sense I, I don't know to what extent this was like their choice and to what extent they were constructed by the dynamics of the field but that yeah is it, uh, is it you mean like putting it at the practice and kind of grinding it out that to, to actually well, the, see what that yeah, would look like on the end on the ground you know so it has to be said Ian of course ran that big massive project at Chatal for right. years and really did, I think that should be given a ton of credit for mm-hmm. trying to implement and implement in interesting technical material ways some of his ideas but intellectually he keeps kind of leaping and you know do you see that today do you see my impression, I don't know, it's maybe too yeah. cynical. I, I see a lot of swooping pummelers where they just kind of... Across the academic world? Not. Yeah, well, it's in archaeology and academics. They come in and, and they, they take an idea or a model and they just kind of apply it worldwide. They kind of just jump in touch where they actually don't spend a lot of time in, a, in an area with a community maybe over 15 or 20 uh, years and like mm-hmm. building a record or building a rapport or yeah. building a relationship and kind of really learning as much as they can about... Um, the past past life ways in these communities yeah. less about not following through with a specific theoretical perspective but also the area and people that you're engaging with mm-hmm. well that you know it's interesting there um Oh, do you remember the Golden Marshall Town? I'm glad. Okay, okay, okay. Come fix my mic. <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up because I, I I'll let you go. But I had I wanted to ask you some questions about that. Go about ahead. that one. Yeah, yeah. because because it's like the scathing, you know, satiric takedown of of fast moving young men. Who right. Don't, right. And the, I mean, the child, the child of the seventies. Yeah, yeah. The child of the seventies. Yeah. And I think that really that in a sense, that, I mean, he. Flannery's a brilliant stylist. I mean, it's just an astonishing... Yeah. That, that dialogue and the one at the beginning of Gila Nahitz is just mm-hmm. amazing pieces of writing. Um, but I think he's he captures some of what I'm trying to describe as a frustration with these mm-hmm. the dominant figures who have an immense amount, you know, have a big vision and an immense amount to, to contribute and then end up kind of playing this role of, cons- you know, of... of um, in, in a kind of oppositional dynamic, yeah. championing the new thing or, mm-hmm. or defending the what was the new thing. Juxtaposed yeah. to the like the old timer yeah. working in the field, exactly. Building yeah, that, yeah, building yeah. that history. And, and when you think about, remember in the in the Golden Marshall Town, I think the the child of the seventies is sort of sitting there correcting mm-hmm. the proofs to their like tenth book while yeah. they're watching football games or something. I forget <laughs> what it was, but uh, that you know, if you're going to be if, if, if your ambition is to be known in the field as a whole, then it seems the strategy has to be to ascend to some highly abstract level of theory and be constantly on the cutting mm-hmm. edge or do the kind of comparative work that has you, you know, sort of dropping into one part of the world and comparing it on some mm-hmm. thematic you know, dimension with other parts of the world. This whole like, producers versus consumers. It was kind like of really stuff. Or, yeah, if that's the kind of thing you have in mind, I would imagine that. Yeah. You know, or comparing, you know, the development of complexity. And I, I mean, there's good and important work done of that theoretical and mm-hmm. comparative sort, but you could see how somebody who immerses in a particular region, a particular uh, archaeological context, Mm-hmm. Um, and really puts in the time and commitment to work with dissent communities and local communities. They're you know they're not going to get the kind of recognition that somebody who's 
doing big comparisons that you know people in two or three different fields subfields have to deal with no you know? but i find and, and we i think the three of us have been able to scratch the surface on some of the work and just build some building blocks but you you find that the archaeology at least for me and i think you guys would agree is, is more meaningful because it's relevant to the community and, and yeah. they have questions and you're building relationships yeah. and rapport and it's kind of like our communities that interested in doing large comparative um worldwide <laughs> regional yeah. studies or are they more interested in exactly what's going on in their community so yeah yeah community I'm, perspectives and uh, what's going to profit your department in the academic sense are not they're going to be opposed mm-hmm. also i think in academia um, i mean things the pendulum moves back and forth mm-hmm. but there certainly has over some decades been a turn against like big you know, often reductive or appropriative theorizing mm-hmm. um, that doesn't recognize the nuance and diversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but I, I, you know, so I was going to ask you: Is there? I don't. I don't see anybody emerging as the kind of dominant figure that that to just to take Binford and Hodder as emblematic uh, of processional post processional debate. I don't see. I think there's a different dynamic in the field. Maybe the reward structure is a little different. Maybe the checks and balances are different. The employment structures are different. But yeah, I don't. Those figures can't emerge anymore. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. Or is it too? Or is it too yeah. specialized now to sort of like draw everybody together because yeah. people are retreating individualistically, and, yeah. pulling away, and there's yeah. not maybe a sense of community in that sense. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, yeah, in fact, that that was one of the things I remember Pat Watson talking about was how archaeology through the the 50s through the 70s or so really moved from being a face in the U.S. was mm-hmm. really what I was hearing about from her face-to-face community that was self-regulating and mm-hmm. everybody knew everybody. They all knew who was good in the field and who wasn't, who you could trust, who you could mm-hmm. work with, right? To a much bigger community with much less immediate face-to-face connection. I mean, uh, I mean, for us, we come at it from a different from a different perspective, I guess, because we work in sort of uh, cultural resource management. I mean, so even farther, so even further removed from the academy, right. right? So, I mean, we do write and we publish and we try to do things, but but are those moments happening like those uh, when Hodder was giving the talk about abandoning? I like, don't, yeah. does, does a similarly pivotal and uh, seem like rally point that happens at a conference? Like, are we at the SEAs and where everybody can agree that there was just this one? incredibly powerful lecture that that's going to change the face of the discipline i can't remember the last yeah. time that's happened drama, drama has happened yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i mean i think there are really not to diminish the um how innovative some recent some recent developments are like the people lots of people like george here at simon fraser um have a lot of visibility for developing and promoting and advocating and articulating what's involved in collaborative work. Sonia Atle is a, mm. as a as an earlier I mean she's not early career anymore but as an earlier career scholar is just really um really influential I think and really em- embodies a way of doing archaeology that's mm. that's very innovative. I mean it certainly wasn't being done when I was training or doing field work. So I don't mean to suggest there's nothing new and exciting happening, but I don't see that work by its very nature is more locally grounded and there's more kind of distributed recognition and and a lot of people working on 
related projects that reinforce one another rather than a dominant figure. It seems, it seems regional, don't you think? Yeah. It's, I mean, there's regional figureheads. <laughs> right, yeah. So you would know better than I do. Um, maybe there are dominant figures who cast a long shadow and really mm-hmm. shape work in particular areas. Yeah, I mean, too, that you already named, yeah. And then I think I, I think of the southeast. I think of people like old mentor Ken Sassman. But I think, yeah. of, like, you've worked in the northwest up here. So who would you say, Ian? I mean, there are the... There are some figures in the Northwest Coast. We've got Gary Copeland, and we've got mm-hmm. Ken Ames. And, mm-hmm. I was going to uh, say Ken Ames. I've been yeah. hearing a lot about from, from uh, Andrew. <laughs> the, North, the Northwest Martin Coast. Yeah. I I think maybe those those figureheads are are known regionally quite well. Yeah. And, uh, I think those shadows are cast very strongly over uh, people working in the Northwest Coast. But um, as far as like yeah. a, an overall archaeological theoretical figurehead i'm not sure yeah like the reason why i feel like we all know those names is is less to do with uh, publications that those folks have written and more with like you get to the bottom of a site form and it's like oh i know you (laughs) it's like same name over and over and over oh you did all of these sites well exactly and so it's the you know the reputation and the influence they are theoretically sophisticated yes but it's not you know it's not like they're just filling out forms. <laughs> but is it is it a sense but, of scale? Uh, like, because you're talking about that sense of community. Yeah. Um, even 30 years ago was so strong that you knew these people, you knew their reputations. And that's kind of what Northwest Coast Archaeology is now. It's at that yeah. same scale. So perhaps those that's just the right scale of research for those uh, yeah, figures yeah. to emerge. Um, so, yeah, a little pop pop sociology on my part because <laughs> <laughs> there's good sociologists I wish we could enlist good historians and sociologists of science to do more work on archaeology communities because I keep mm-hmm. running into the, the limitations like my trainings in philosophy but these issues are all like super relevant to how archaeology you know how evident what gets counted as evidence and ha- evidential reasoning and all the stuff I've worked on it, it's all undergirded by the institutional dynamics and the employment context and mm-hmm. personal dynamics, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think the thing about um, the folks who are really influential regionally is that their influence is leveraged on what they've done empirically, yeah. what they mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. deeply uh, and have contributed, yeah. you know, in, in that context in kind of the way that Jim Pendergast's reputation was was staked on doing this work in the St. Lawrence River Valley and, and then working with Trigger, who also was able, interestingly, to move from very theoretical, very broad view of the history of archaeological theory, but 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 ground it in serious engagement with archaeology in particular areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you one question about uh, the Golden Marshall Town? Yeah. <laughs> as yeah. a... As a a, a philosopher did you take offense to his attack on the what did he call it what was the first character like the new age philosopher yeah do you think that was a fair assessment at the time in terms well, of well i remember yeah i should go back and look at that again because that's yeah. the character i i remember least about which is telling yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i um yeah it's interesting i mean i had my own issues with philosophy uh, at the time, and so I could recognize a certain, you know, there's a certain arrogance and and mm-hmm. disengage. Like we know better, even though right. we don't know anything actually about yeah. it. You know? <laughs> um, so I didn't. I no, I wasn't particularly offended. I think I I found it amusing. I sh- but I should go look at it again and like think more about the nature of his criticism. Yeah. But so within philosophy, 
it's interesting from the time I was studying philosophy of science at Mount A in the 70s and then went on and do this grad work at Binghamton there there was at the time also this really major sea change happening in philosophy of science so it's sort of interesting you get like the new archaeology and then processualism all you know that dynamic taking place uh in this well 70s 80s mm-hmm. into the 90s and uh philosophy of science was really shifting dramatically sort of post kuhnian philosophy of science or contextualist or post empiricist philosophy of science so that older work that was being criticized in the 70s uh by the people who I was taking courses with um tended to be very idealized and and all the questions about the nature of science and so on were driven by philosophical traditions of debate mm-hmm. Um, and and you know science would be invoked in this sort of hand wavy term. Right? <laughs> so one one guy who I never met, but he was he was is uh, at McGill, Mario Bunge. He was uh, I think he was Argentinian originally, and he was like a scathing critic of what he called you know sort of textbook science or <laughs> or you know intro textbook science or fantasy images of science. You know, that, that the philosophers of science just were not taking seriously mm. scientific practice or even the results of science. It was just this kind of, well, we all know what science really is, and then you spin out a bunch of philosophical models on that basis. Mm. So there was this turn happening at the time, lots of internal critiques of the logical positivism and this idealized philosophy of science. So it wasn't like philosophers weren't kind of taking apart their own models. They were. This received view was under challenge internally. Um, but uh, challenges from people like Kuhn, for example, and the increasingly sociologists of science of various kinds, really um, sort of pushed this transition among philosophers to s- focusing more seriously on actual scientific mm-hmm. practice. So you get this um, history and philosophy of science configuration happening, HPS, in the 70s. Yeah. The idea there was if you're going to do philosophy of science, you ought to ground your idealized models in some understanding of like Newton or Darwin or like the best. You know? yeah. and, since, and, and then increasingly philosophers of science focused on particular fields and particular subfields. So me doing work on archaeology... Um, was pretty eccentric at the time I was doing it, but at least there was space to, to move in that direction. So people doing philosophy of physics, which was the main you know, heartland of philosophy of science, they were increasingly rolling up their sleeves and actually learning a lot about what particular physicists or physical theories you know, yeah. said and, and what, what the big transitions were in the history of physics, for example. So that was, so that was all happening in the 70s uh, in the period when I was... Okay. Studying and and it was uh, it made it much more um, much more possible to bring archaeology together with philosophy. So anyway, the, the Golden Marshalltown, the Flannery's critique, could be read, if I'm remembering it right, as just the kind of critique that Bungay developed. It's like okay. here's this you know fantasy world image of yeah. science mm-hmm. that you like actually have no idea what how messy scientific inquiry is yeah. right and then the idea that you could characterize what real science is in terms of fantasy image physics and that that ought to tell mm-hmm. you what everything else ought to look it's like you know a non-starter it's a i guess i want to ask you a question about this because um 
I mean, I took, uh, I tried to take metaphysics, I think when I was an undergrad at Florida, either second or third year. I was like, this will help me in anthropology. Oh, I'll take metaphysics. And I showed up and I just got my ass kicked the whole semester. <laughs> what were you reading? What were you doing? Oh, God. It was like this, I think it was like personal identity book. It was like a, oh, it was yeah. a volume. And uh-huh. then, I mean, I remember the first day that we argued the existence of a chair and I was just like, they were all being funny, but I, did, I couldn't even like contribute to the conversation. So yeah. anyways. I, the jumping off point for this was like, how did you get drawn into philosophy and sort of oh, what drew you such, to that? And yeah. then, then because of your early archaeological experiences, you thought that was a really good match or you thought this was a good lens yeah. to sort of explore this. Well, I, you know, Mount A back in like 72, 73, which was when I started as an undergraduate, had year long courses. <laughs> Wow. And, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. and there was a basic kind of arts curriculum. You did classics, and you did English, and you did history, and you did philosophy, and then I forget what else. There was something science-y that I did. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> didn't, make <a> big, <laughs> didn't make a big impression, I guess. But my, <laughs> philo- my intro philosophy teacher was my favorite teacher. I really, okay. I really liked him a lot. And, um, and, I, and it sort of it dawned on me by the end of my first year, at least I maybe this is like retrospective um, wisdom that I was drawn to philosophical questions in all the other courses I was taking. So if I was reading, you know, I was interested in sort of intellectual history in the history class and in the, you know, in the in the literature, literary theory, literature classes. I was kind of interested in philosophical issues about identity. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the identity of this character? Or what are they? Anyway, those kinds of things. Okay. Um, so I, I, you know, without really knowing what philosophy was, I mean, th- nobody was teaching philosophy before you got to college. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wandered into this class and was like, oh, that's what I'm interested in. <laughs> so you're just drawn to it right yeah, away. I wa- yeah. Your, it, your brain really without knowing. Yeah. It really it it worked for me in a lot of ways and it and it worked i think because the the uh, instructor of that intro class was so great and his name is paul bogart and it turned out he, he must have been like 12 years old when he was teaching this class <laughs> <laughs> but at the time he seemed like you know, well, yeah. you know not 12 but probably 26 or 7 or something right? Yeah, wow. oh. all right he he hadn't quite finished his dissertation i i learned later mm. uh he'd been doing uh, graduate work at Emory in Atlanta. Yeah, okay. uh, he'd done most of a degree, if not, I think most of a most of a degree. I don't think he finished an, an earlier PhD in chemistry, but he had a lot of training in chemistry. He was a philosopher of science interested in chemistry. Okay, which at the time was pretty radical because the assumption was with quantum you know, mechanics being developed. If you got the physics right, you wouldn't need chemistry because it would all reduce and, you you know, the quantum stuff would tell you what was happening at the level of, The physicists you know. think they know everything, so don't they? <laughs> <laughs> and he was kind of, and he was early on publishing these papers. It's now become a whole subfield of its own mm-hmm. in which he was arguing, like, even if you, you know, quantum mechanics gives a huge leg up. You can understand a lot of things using quantum mechanics, but lots of chemical phenomena you can't understand only in terms of the quantum mechanics. And he knew the chemistry and, and practice of researching chemistry in enough you know, intimate detail, that he could make this argument in terms of the chemistry itself rather than an abstract film. Well, maybe it's not really, you know, for these mm-hmm. counterexample reasons, not really going to be possible to reduce chemistry. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So he, he, but he was really interesting. When I came back from that first summer field uh, experience in Saskatchewan, I 
took his course, and it was a year-long history and philosophy of science class in which we read um, Hempel and Kuhn and Hansen and all those guys. In fact, the new archaeology archaeologist um, uh, had had Jim Cizenti had assigned some Hempel and some mm-hmm. alongside the new archaeologist. So it was in that second year Phil of science class that I, I could see the connections. This is where it all came together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he was, Paul Bogart, interestingly, he was connected enough, and I'm not quite sure how, but he was connected up with people in Phil Sci, like Wes Salmon and Marilee Salmon. So he got like preprint copies. Of, you know, there were two little papers that Marilee did uh, for American Antiquity on, I think, concepts of explanation and confirmation and as I remember, he had preprint copies of those oh. that I got mm. to see. He said, you might be interested in this. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but when that class, he was urging all the students. I mean, it wasn't a big, it was a little seminar. It urged all the students in that class to kind of immerse themselves, if they could, or draw on a science that they already knew to develop papers for the class that would be philosophy of science engaged with actual science. So. I wrote a paper on whether archaeology was having a Kuhnian revolution. Yeah. <laughs> Did it? <laughs> well, I thought it depended on what you, how you conceptualize the it. revolution. Right. Right? I mean, obvious yeah. philosopher move, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, it what does it mean? It depends. Yeah. <laughs> and now let's parse finally <laughs> concepts. Right. No, but, I, but it didn't seem to me that, yeah, actually, that, that was the context where I think I first started thinking about some of the critiques along the lines you were asking. Okay. That it didn't seem to me like the new archaeology was quite as new as mm-hmm. as Binford was claiming, yeah. but it was some years later when I was doing dissertation work that I sort of tracked back the references in those articles and then to Taylor and then from Taylor and others of his generation back and back and back and and realized that there in in 1907 1918 in that period First World War period there were these articles being published with titles like the new. Re- the real new archaeology. Really? Right? Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, and the argument was that the real new archaeology was making a break at that point with antiquarian, you know, collection-driven yeah. practice. Right. Uh, was going to be problem-oriented and contribute to anthropological understanding of the past and, mm-hmm. you know, use scientific method to, you know, anyway, question-asking method. So it was, it was remarkably similar in many general respects mm-hmm. to the new archaeology of the 70s. Yeah. Um, all right, Allison. Uh, one of the other things we wanted to talk about today was uh, what you're up to currently. Uh, we're at UBC. Uh, what, are you, what are you doing here? <laughs> Another origin story. <laughs> <laughs> the delivery on that felt very contrived. I apologize to the listeners. We, you may have noticed we thought that one up beforehand. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I don't know. Did I say this earlier? I moved here uh, last fall, basically, from University of Washington. Um, and I'm, I'm really delighted to be back in Canada. I can't tell you how. I mean, right now? In the current climate? Yeah, well, we always thought we'd we'd move back to Canada eventually, like maybe when I retired. But the great fortune was that um, UBC Philosophy advertised, well, they got a Canada Research Chair, or they got dibs on advertising one, and they advertised it in philosophy of the social and historical sciences, so I got oh. to apply. <laughs> the deadline, as it happened, was about a week before, or 
Yeah, sorry, a week or 10 days after Trump got elected. So I think they got a lot of applications. From <laughs> and I know. Do you think he has a philosophy? <laughs> I, I don't know that. You don't I can't go down that rabbit hole. But uh, yeah, so, you know, it was a long process because they ran this big, old, you know, this big search and um, and I got the job and then... I knew there was this other step where you write a Canada Research Chair research program for mm-hmm. seven years, but I didn't appreciate quite how big a job that was going to be. So I spent last summer and part of the fall uh, writing that up. And the reason I'm kind of going through all this bureaucratic stuff is because, um, you know, I could, you could, it's pretty easy to say, well, pretty easy, but it's more straightforward to say what I found it more straightforward to say what I thought I could be doing or would be doing with um, CRC support for the next, you know, one to four years, maybe. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it gets pretty hand-wavy. Yeah. <laughs> and, what, and so there's stuff on evidential reasoning and conceptions of data and some standpoint theory stuff, uh, feminist and otherwise, that I knew I wanted to work on, and I could kind of, you know, sketch that out. But then I said, you know, I've been writing these papers on collaborative practice and what the the, you know, to put it clearly, what the epistemic payoff is of doing collaborative work, where mm-hmm. in face of critics who say, you know, if archaeologists are doing collaborative work with First Nations or any anybody who's not a professional archaeologist, you're compromising the science, right? So, so my uh, the work I had done was um, mainly took the form of interventions in that kind of critical debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are philosophers who make those accusations, and I'm sure you've run into it in archaeological contexts. You just you know you, you're compromising the integrity of the of the of the field. Um, so I you know I described that as uh, one line of inquiry mm-hmm. I'd already done some work on that I wanted to push further. And my big ambition that I thought maybe in four or five years I might finally get to the point where I could convince some archaeology colleagues to let me actually be involved in a yeah. collaborative practice rather than just kind of. You know, mm-hmm. write about it after it's been published. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what, I mean, what exactly does a philosopher have to contribute to <laughs> field archaeological, you know, collaborative field practice, field work. But anyway, the long and short is that that was, you know, maybe I was hand waving and saying in six or seven years, you know, I hope to get there. I hope to do this kind of work. Well, uh, within a month, actually, literally on the day I was dealing with the movers in Seattle, mm-hmm. Andrew Martindale and, and uh, several people he was working with convened a workshop here at the Peter Wall uh, Institute. And out of that came, I mean, I think they had this plan before that workshop, but that workshop kick-started development of a um, proposal for internal UBC research cluster funding mm. for what uh, the title is, in uh, what gets called Indigenous Slash Science. Mm-hmm. And that, the, as a research cluster, what UBC provides support for is really just infrastructure, so you know, funding to to help. Um, well, the way it's mostly envisioned to help uh, researchers at UBC in different fields who have converging or intersecting interests get together and figure out how to work together, and that that mm-hmm. gives them a leg up to be competitive for getting external funding of various kinds. So you can imagine lots of health science, medical research, um, 
lots of uh, environmental, ecological work of that kind. Not that many projects from the social sciences or the humanities. Mm -hmm. So anyway, this one got funded, and Andrew invited me to join uh, into in it. And so all of a sudden, in my very first year here, I'm actually doing what I thought I might possibly be able to yeah. <laughs> sidle into. <laughs> That's incredible. You know, in six or seven years. So it's been great. Mm -hmm. um, and we're still all, I think, trying to figure out what a philosopher can usefully do. <laughs> but but the uh, idea, Andrew always had uh, as part of this project, part of the vision for this project was that it would have a node, which is, we've come to call it the reflection node, uh, social scientists, humanists, philosophers, who would be reflecting on and documenting and critically assessing the development of these partnerships mm -hmm. as they go forward. So mm -hmm. I haven't actually said what the cluster is meant to do. Um, the idea is to bring together archaeologists, and, and there's some um, endangered language, uh, First Nations endangered language linguists involved, there are anthropologists and historians, and lots of lab-based scientists. Uh, Dominique Weiss runs a big uh, geochem lab. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and there's, there are several um, chemists of various kinds and isotope researchers of various kinds. And the idea was to bring all this network of UBC-based researchers and, and UBC-connected researchers, and not everybody is at UBC, but bring them all together and then in delegations, go out to First Nations communities, mostly ones with whom Andrew or other primarily archaeologists have had already working relationships, and um, give and and present. Just say, here's here what capabilities we have in our network as a collective. Are there problems, questions you'd like to see addressed about cultural heritage or ecology and land use over time and so on that we could help with? Mm -hmm. So it, the idea is not to go to First Nation community and say, we have a really nifty, cool project that might possibly be relevant to you, yeah. <laughs> and we'd like to do it in a respectful and whatever kind of way. Um, but to actually build like these relationships first and, and build these partnerships where the problems and questions that we work on get articulated it, it, indigenous-led projects. They're driven by the community, and you guys facilitate it with your skill sets, and you work together to figure out how that should what that could be. be what that could be and how that gets yeah. carried out and so the idea is like if you know we we make a commitment to find the funding mm -hmm. to do the work that that uh is relevant for for them so that's that's what the cluster is about this is, indigenous science other project are they just getting off the ground now mm -hmm. are, are some being put into practice like kind of the early stages and it's really early stages yeah. yeah and the thing is this um uh, this, uh, what's it called, um, Vice President Research Innovation, this research cluster funding mm -hmm. is only for infrastructure, not for direct research costs. Hmm. So okay. you can have workshops, you can go on visits, you can bring people in, you, you know, sort of scoping out what your, what your um, projects could be. So pretty quickly, the First Nations communities that we've talked to have had ideas about things they'd like done and we don't yet have the money to do them. So mm -hmm. awesome. we need to turn a corner on that. But um, among the communities that where you know, where there's possible projects mm -hmm. developing, well, obviously Musqueam. And mm -hmm. so one of the ideas was that there are of course, lots of first nations belongings in museum and lab collections at UBC. 
especially Musqueam, mm-hmm. uh, Musqueam belongings. And so one question was, what what could we be doing with these capabilities we have that would be relevant to Musqueam mm-hmm. community with those materials? And so one, one thing that's under discussion is um, that uh, Ryan McMillan, who works with Dominic Weiss in, in her geochem lab, um, he's using, he's developing and using this minimally destructive technique to remove tiny, tiny pinpoint samples from obsidian, uh, from you know obsidian flakes yeah. or mm-hmm. tools, or you know just samples, uh, and then they do they do their uh, mass spectrometry magic with that and oh, their wow. Raman magic. I guess yeah. they don't. Uh, anyway, they do all their geochem magic. magic. Yeah. <laughs> Voodoo. Speaking as a philosopher, yeah. <laughs> trained by a philosopher of chemistry who didn't ever really <laughs> internalize the details. Anyway, yeah. but um, and they and the thing is, Dominique is a volcanologist, and she and her colleagues uh, have, uh, I guess, um, chem, you know, profiles, uh, isotope and and heavy metal and other kinds of profiles uh, mm-hmm. of. Of uh, the of volcanic flows all oh. up and down the coast. So, what they're finding is that they can identify where a particular piece of obsidian or obsidian mm-hmm. belonging came from, in principle, to the particular flow on a particular mountain. Wow! <laughs> so they can identify, you know, precision. and yeah, yeah, it's really impressive. And yeah. and obsidian is apparently really good to work with because once the f- you know the volcanic flow has come out, it doesn't degrade or change chemically over time. Hmm. So it varies a lot what you can do, I gather, with different kinds of material depending on anyway what you know post deposition or erosion or whatever. But um, of course, the Musqueam are interested in that kind of analysis because as, mm-hmm. as I've heard um, there Aviva actually and and uh, Jason Woolman archivist there as they've said Musqueam are interested in people understanding that they aren't just a dot on the map you know mm-hmm. their whole sense of engagement with the land and um, tr- trade relations and yeah. and access to and rights to uh, resources it's really extensive through the whole region. It's not at all the kind of property regime where it's one bounded. Well, anyway, you guys know all this. <laughs> Runs right? counter to yeah, the entire. Yeah, but our listeners. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so that so that's really of interest to them. Yeah. Um, and there's other, there are other projects that they're possibly interested in uh, some history of Musqueam archaeology relations that would pick up the story from Susan Susan Roy. Yeah. Told wonderful wonderful book. Um, These mysterious people. People, yeah. Mm-hmm. I read, yeah. Which, which just takes you up to Borden, and so one thing that might be useful, and this in in the spirit of you know the reflection node work, mm-hmm. would be to uh, document to do a history of how Musqueam uh, Museum UBC relations have evolved, and how Musqueam those relationships have shaped archaeology as much as. The reverse, and they certainly have in, in lots of fantastic, profound actually. ways. So, so that's very that's like a gleam in the eye. That's that's uh, you know just something we've talked very informally about. So yeah. that's one example, and another is um, um, Penelicut, uh, where Andrew has been doing some work with Colin Greer on mm, right. Lamalchi, using uh, GPR ground penetrating ra- radar to, to document um, architectural features on that site. But he also, you probably know this, right? He also did uh, some, not that long ago, but I think a couple of years ago, he did some work on using GPR on a known cemetery 
for the for residential, residential school. Yeah, we know so that this now. notorious yeah. Cooper mm-hmm. Island Residential School, one of the worst ever, ran for just under 100 years, closed in 75. And there is a known cemetery where staff were buried. And as I understand it, when he did the GPR work there, um, they also they could identify the graves of the of the staff members, but they also identified a lot of uh, several unmarked child sized graves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I and, saw this yeah. talk at the Society for Applied um, Anthropology. Is that the conference? It, it was a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and, they, and they had yeah, and they had elders coming and talking and sharing their story. It was quite moving and it's I mean really visceral, powerful. like actually yeah. hearing her speak and. In yeah. the story, yeah. Was it Jill Harris? Do you remember? Oh, God, yeah. it was, yeah. I can't remember. It was like March 2016, but I yeah. think, but I can't remember exactly Cause, who. Because Andrew and Jill have written a short piece together that's just really, really powerful about this, and it was in a collection of essays that the Peter Wall Institute put mm. together. Let me look for that. It's really, it's really impressive. But anyway, so so the, I think when the um, when that work was you know when they when they did that work the elders called a halt and said we need you know this we need to figure out how to deal with this sort of spiritual disruption mm-hmm. and, and 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 move forward only when we know what we're going to do so so i was um observer at a meeting with the elders committee at the beginning of august where discussion was being reopened about about doing some of this documentation using GPR to identify to locate unmarked graves, and it, you know it's entirely at the direction of the community. Mm-hmm. You know, people stopped by and chatted a bit, and you know, it's one time I've ever been in the field, or the only time I've ever I don't even know of a project where you hope you don't find right. what you're right. looking right. for. Right. Yeah. 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 But the effectiveness of that tool. Andrew's been working with it for quite a long time, and uh, the ability to relocate graves without ground disturbance is, yeah. is quite huge. It's really impressive. Um, and yeah. I think the uh, most communities are really uh, interested in in the pension, the potential mm-hmm. for such non-destructive technique. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, and of course this was had been um, cleared, grubbed, so mm. it was pretty easy to work over. But these kids could be anywhere. Yeah. On that property, and one of the elders was—he's done this in testimony for the TRC. But mm-hmm. he was describing, you know, as 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 a kid in this school, he was sexually abused in any number of places, and there could be kids buried in many of them. I mean, they're sort of secluded and mm-hmm. known to be places where bad things happen. And you're just like, oh my god, you know? Yeah. Right. So. One thing that emerged really clearly in that discussion is that it can't be just the GPR. It can use the GPR to do this kind of ground truthing, but got to be working with community, um, particularly the survivors and, and children of survivors or family members who who have memories, who, who know where to look, mm-hmm. basically. And that's not, you know... That's hard work to do, and it's not work that, I mean, Andrew would be the first to say, although he's spent a lot of time with people talking about these things, it's not work we're trained to do. So we may need to be expanding our, you know, if we do more of this, if if we're asked to do more, Mm -hmm. then we're going to need to be expanding our capabilities to include people who do oral history and know how to do this well and to find the resources so that we can support anybody in the community, compensate people who are helping with this work, and also make sure that there's, you know, 
the kind of support they might need. Especially on such an incredibly sensitive yeah. subject. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think? I don't know. Do you think the practice of doing that—that that, that archaeology can be some form of healing or therapy? I mean, we don't, we don't really frame it like yeah. that too often. But is that process when you guys are out there? You may need compensate for all these other things that are going on to deal with the emotions and mm-hmm. and everything else that goes along culturally with that. Yeah. Do you find that archaeology can be a tool for that? Then? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't done enough of it hands on <laughs> to know, but there's also some really great work that um, mostly I've heard about from Sonia Atale that she's doing huh. on um, she's doing some collaborative writing these days on repatriation as uh, as an effective and healing process, like at, where the affect dimension. It's not just about the legality and the ownership, but precisely what you're describing. Yeah. And there was a wonderful talk by the director of the Haida Gwaii Cultural Heritage, I think, museum or center. Um, she was had just been appointed to that position, and it, it, this was a lecture at Green College for a series, Green College and Museum of Anthropology, a series on living with the dead. And she really traced this whole process uh, by which Haida, the Haida had worked with archaeologists and anthropologists and museums and various other institutions um, doing repatriation and getting getting their heritage programs set up. And it was really all about how about the affective dimensions and the and the healing the cultural healing dimensions of that work. Um, one thing that really impressed me was that Michael Bray, you know, after there was, it was a really powerful talk. And afterwards, you know, the, the person introducing it said, so now open for questions. And everybody just kind of sat there looking yeah. at their yeah. feet. You know? <laughs> and Michael Blake, it was just wonderful. It wasn't a question. It was uh, just a kind of recognition. And he said, well, you know how transformative it was for us. And he means archaeologists, those of us who got to work with you back in the day, how mm-hmm. profoundly that transformed the way we do archaeology and everything everything we do in connection with cultural heritage. So I think the answer is for sure yes, but it's not it maybe not only the doing of the archaeology, it's all the engagements around it that make it possible and that frame it. Yeah. But I think that's a direction that more and more people are going is to think about all these dimensions of archaeological practice that have been off the table. I mean processualism was going to narrow you down to the the ecological and the purely scientific, right? And then you get various, you know, processual, post-processual, or processual plus kind of adding back in cultural dimensions, life world dimensions, the social. And I think increasingly people are now attending to this kind of broader, bigger picture. Yeah, and a lot of my formative experiences, and I think you guys as well can speak to this, you get the work within communities and it's a processual processualism gives you that very narrow view but there's all these things with feelings and relationships and emotions and when you're in the field and, and and you're helping these you're helping your friends that are doing stuff maybe you're doing archaeology one day but then you need to fish or go to the garden or there's other things there's someone in the passage you need to be involved in doing these works in the community so it's a lot larger it's than than maybe we were initially taught in undergrad and what we think it is and, and what is actually could be capable of i think archaeology and anthropology could be a, a bigger thing that it's just a part of an informal relationship that just grows and builds something that a community can really sink their teeth into and use. And it can really change the way we have even even imagined archaeology to be. Sorry, were you going to say something? Well, I was just thinking about how 
archaeology and re our research goals going into any archaeological project, even just to know about the culture history of an area, um, I, I feel like more and more the determination of uh, why we do archaeology is to build those relationships and to have those experiences uh, as, as just as meaningful as any sort of uh, traditionally scientific mm -hmm. push that we have to go out and dig these holes in the ground. Like the purpose is to, to be with the community, to be with these people that we know and to have those experiences with them. Uh, it just feels like that's my, uh, that can be a very strong determinant to why we are doing archeology span in the first place. And why we're drawn to it, to be present. Mm -hmm. no. well, then, can, so that's, sorry, there's one, I read a, <laughs> I always revert to these philosophy sources, right? But there's this wonderful, wonderful paper by a, call, a guy called Jeff Cochin. I never met him. Um, he was at, he was a postdoc at uh, University of Constance in, in Germany. Um, I'm not sure where he is now, but anyway, when he wrote this paper, that's where he was. And it, it's um, a response to Latour. It's a critique of Latour and his agonistic conception of laboratory practice and, and the, the pasteurization of France, you know, that that agonism of the laboratory contestation, right, being extended to organize the whole world as a laboratory that you control in various ways. And he's saying, well, the Latourian model of how science gets done doesn't make sense of lots of field sciences. That rather than this sort of agonistic model, he was using examples from uh, of ecology, ecologists working, I believe it was in the Yukon, and doing collaborative work with First Nations indigenous people in the Yukon on, for example, uh, caribou herds and uh, caribou biology and, and ecology. Um, and he describes the practice of these field sciences better understood as a neighborly practice rather than as an agonistic, you know, battlefield practice. It was, it was a really lovely article, and I, I think it captures exactly this sense. And, and for the Indigenous Science Project, that's ex the whole point of it is that it's relationships first, and then we see where that goes in terms of what our skills as archaeologists or philosophers or ethnographers, what how they could be useful. Yeah, I'll have to read that caribou paper, but I guess to kind of finish off and ask you a question then, then because you're kind of leading to it, I mean, do you necessarily see there has to be a divide between science, I'm doing air quotes so you guys can see that, <laughs> versus, versus uh, yeah. Radio air quotes. <laughs> yeah, <radio> <laughs> indigenous ways of knowing and being. It sounds like from you mentioned this probably a half hour ago. You kind of dropped a little nugget. It sounds like you don't have to see that divide. Not as, not as clearly as it's been drawn in lots of contexts, and not just in philosophy contexts. But yeah, the, that's often um, you know the worry, the the worry or the reproach or the critique is like, well, you can't possibly be doing like objective science. Right. If you're allowing the questions you ask and what you consider as evidence and the hypotheses you 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 know you you consider all to be informed by these very localized contextually specific relationships and I you know no I, I don't I just don't I mean there's good and bad work for sure we have to be able to say that I'm not I'm not advocating for you know alternate facts and make it up any way you want right <laughs> absolutely not but uh, the kinds of rigor that um, indigenous communities bring to the the knowledge that that they hold and pass on of of their ecological context and their histories and their social worlds is in many ways, I mean, it's it's specific to those traditions of practice, 
but it's but it's absolutely rigorous, right? It's you know you can definitely do it wrong, mm-hmm. and there are practices of learning from and practices of extending knowledge and so on. I mean, I'm not well informed. I hope to be better informed soon, but but um, but there, I think there there's real. Um, it's really important to recognize the epistemic integrity of those traditions. So if the aims of that practice, of those kinds of practices, are different than the aims of self-identified scientific research practitioners, um, I think you need to focus on, like, what are the aims? And are the practices and are the norms of, you know, what counts as doing it well or doing it badly, are they well-tuned to the goals of that practice? And then, and I think actually, um, if you go back to like T.J. Ferguson and um, right. Chip Caldwell and the, yeah. the work they did on on virtue ethics, where they asked archaeologists and they asked um, mm-hmm. Native American partners, research partners, like, what do you value in a research partner? And there was like a lot of overlap. <laughs> yeah. Then there, then there were these areas where. You know, the, the Native American community members were, you know, they valued kind of humility and modesty and thoughtfulness and so on. And the archaeologists much more valued, you know, sort of like aggressive <laughs> self <laughs> That's not quite, I'm not getting, I'm not remembering the, the terms, but, you know, there was, the divide was over this kind of, you know, model uh, leader kind of thing, as opposed to somebody like immersed in a community and working with a community. But but there was a lot of overlap, and I and and from everything I understand, I think that's true uh, for all kinds of knowledge production and knowledge authorization and knowledge recognition kinds of practices. That's philosophy speak, but you know you get the picture. So I don't think you know there there'll be areas where these uh, traditions diverge sharply, and I think there are respectful ways to say I recognize that that's what you believe and how you understand the world. I can't share in that way of understanding the world or that form of inquiry, but I recognize the integrity it has and the value it has. Yeah, I, I find I, once you establish those relationships and you become friends, and you can talk about the really sensitive stuff and you can be open and say those kind of things and talk about your own ignorance. It's like, I can't see that from that perspective, but it doesn't mean I devalue it at all, right? But mm-hmm. there just seems to be a mutual growth and respect and trying to trying to get there. But I find once they're established, you can really you can really be honest and, 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 and build trust. And that's really what's important when we're within communities. And, and the thing that's amazing is how much you learn about the weirdness of uh, your own take. I mean, the standard, yeah. was it Geertz or maybe it's just sort of generally anthropologist. You mm-hmm. make the familiar strange and the strange familiar, mm-hmm. right? And that, that whole process. So the stuff I've done earlier on collaborative practice, where I was kind of facing off these, you know, or I wanted to intervene in a debate where people doing collaborative work were taking a lot of criticism for mm-hmm. not anymore doing real archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the kind of argument I made is if there's anything that's characteristic, that's core value for Western science, it's that you hold all your assumptions and your practices open to critical scrutiny. Now, that's not true of all cultural knowledge mm-hmm. traditions, but that's core to our tradition. So on what basis do you ever say, well, I'm not going to question the goals and the norms of my research practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like This is what objectivity is in science, full stop. And it somehow <laughs> transcends all, you know, it's a perspectival. It, it transcends all 
context. I mean, that that's inimical to the core value that defines our cultural tradition. Yeah. I get that other people aren't going to buy, you know, that value. Like they're going to say, well, there are some things you just don't question. You know, mm -hmm. you take on authority of the cultural tradition or the elders or whatever. You know, but but like to be consistent ourselves, where do we ever get off saying? This is all and only what our science can be. Mm -hmm. You know, our science, our science practices, if they're robust and they deserve the respect they give them, have to be because we're continually criticizing and scrutinizing, scrutinizing and extending and refining them mm -hmm. in various ways. And and one of the best ways to get critical leverage on assumptions you might not even know you hold is to have those kinds of conversations. Yeah, you know, and and have somebody say like, why exactly do you think? this mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. why are you not considering these kinds of evidence why are you not uh imagining these kinds of hypotheses right mm -hmm. so anyway that was the, those were old arguments but now i'm i'm uh, in the process of maybe learning how to live them yeah <laughs> yeah what does that mean on yeah. the ground as you're putting in two by twos and <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's some conversations that can be off-putting because you you get stuck in regular modes of practice and things that have become yeah. very normalized and uh they're just it's a bit jarring to to have to deviate from that and it's always difficult to do that but um to be open to that in the field and in oftentimes quite stressful situations and field situations it's a it's a it takes practice to be yeah. able to reconsider your assumptions on the fly like that <laughs> well you can't i mean you can't kind of revise or hold everything it can't be that everything is up for grabs at the same time mm -hmm. so you just have to be prepared at least periodically to take on some of the time. But yeah. The, yeah, the crucial thing, I mean, what this reflection note of the Indigenous Science Project, what we really need to do, and we're going to need, like, not philosophers, people who do empirical ethnography and so on to help with this, but is, um, and political analysts and lots mm -hmm. of input from uh, First Nations communities and partners, is to understand the real political stakes involved in this research. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it's just perfectly clear that there's no work we can be doing that isn't going to be always already tied up in legal, you know, have legal implications mm -hmm. and configured by uh, massively unjust, inequitable political and economic yeah. relations, you know. Yeah. So... Anyway, it's, yeah. So whether you're doing uh, archaeological research on behalf of a university or you're doing it on behalf of a nation, um, those political uh, those political circumstances are informing your work, even if you're doing the exact same two-by-twos and you're writing the exact same notes and all your methods mm -hmm. are exactly the same. It's the difference between those two institutions or those two, those two backgrounds. Um, it's going to... Uh, affect the questions you're asking so the methods are the same but like the places you're investigating and how that material is going to be published or not published what um, use will be made of it yeah. yeah yeah so i think a big piece of this is is to cultivate the you know the language of epistemic humility but to cultivate this awareness that you could be wrong there could be other ways of seeing it and there could be uses made of work you do in good faith mm -hmm. best to the best of your ability that you don't anticipate that could be quite devastating in ways you don't intend. So that kind of 360-degree awareness of the context you're working in, I think that's the main thing. Yeah. You know, 
you guys wanna is there anything else you'd like to ask Allison no no <laughs> my microphone is collapsing hey, oh, Cody will help you well maybe that's a sign of the times so maybe the, the, the night's over yeah when the when the, the boom starts drooping that's when we gotta get scooting so no no that was, that was just, oh my I thought that was okay what no, was sorry. no no we can keep, we can keep. no never mind should we um, just want you to say thank you we, yeah well yeah this is a, a probably a, a good time uh, to say thanks so much for inviting us into your your lovely lovely office and uh, you know it's been a pleasure uh, listening to you it's, it's been fantastic. Oh, great yeah. to talk to you guys. Thank you for the pizza yeah. and the ginger beer. Oh, and- you're welcome. <laughs> that was yeah. excellent. I, I now have a n- nicely expanded reading list for myself as I go through the year. Yeah, you have to give it. Yeah, we have a lot to read now. So, but thank you for taking the time to chat with us. We really oh, do appreciate great. it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing this pod. I mean, doing the whole. The whole podcast for doing transact. Oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks. It's uh, it's that kind of feedback that keeps us going. <laughs> hey, when you're endorsed by Allison Wiley, you can do anything now. Yeah, no, actually, Uh-oh. that's a good- <laughs> maybe not. Maybe. <laughs> Yeah, we, this is a good episode to tell you about our new Patreon. You yeah. can feel free to <laughs> yeah. no, no, but uh, yeah, again, thanks so much, and uh, that'll be it for us this week. Uh, I guess we can. We're, oh, we're going to try and get some out in the in the next week. Um, we're not sure who our next guest will be, but we promise they'll be uh, excellent. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll talk to you next time on the Transect.